humanistic theories of administration, that is uh, Chester Bernard. So let's take up the new theory for discussion today. Different ways you have to develop your skill. 
So, you know, give some time, take adequate time, think about it, present nicely, and if required, also refer to some sources. You know, present nicely. Next is, when you are writing, uh, say, avoid abrupt beginning of your answer. You know, the abrupt beginning means, simply place the question on, uh, you say, Taylor's philosophy. Don't start. Taylor's philosophy is best known for principles of administration, you know, such as the following four. It's very abrupt beginning, you know. Though a conventional introduction is not required, but in the very beginning, you know, to begin with, we just directly address the, the question. Directly address the question and your opening lines, just remember your opening lines, one or two lines, in the initial line, opening line, it should have two of these things. One, while reading your opening line, the examiner should be able to fully understand what you have understood by the question. Second, examiner should broadly able to understand what all you must have included in your answer. That is what is the opening line and that is why the opening lines are referred to as the introduction. So many a time the problem, the confusion arises because we treat introduction from a very mechanical point of view as if the opening lines, beautiful lines is what is referred to as introduction. Introduction means you are introducing. So introducing to the, you know, introducing the answer. So when you introduce the answer, these are the two things. What you have understood by the question and what all possibly you are including in your answer. This should be in the opening line. So conventionally, let's say in your university days, the way you write, you used to write introduction, forget it. Okay? So directly you have to look up down to say two things you have to maintain here. One, you have to directly address the question right from the beginning, but having said so, you have to understand you don't have to abruptly begin. Though you have to directly read the question. That means as for the essence of the question, you have to start. Second, you have to have introduction, but not in the conventional sense. It is an introduction which directly addressing the question right from the first word itself. Okay? You try it because it will take some time to have that approach, you know, develop that approach. Second, following which you present your body. That means the, 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 the statement, the question itself carries some, an essence. And you just answer that. So following that, you start developing your answer. But while you develop your answer, you should remain very careful about the task terms. Because our tendency has been that whatever the question is, let's say that the statement. Now the statement, let's say for example, says that Weberian theory of administration is mechanistic. Let's or it has ignored social psychological aspect of the organization. So in this there is a you know, there is a statement. So let's say uh, it might be including comment or examine or discuss or uh, let's say illustrate or analyze. So number of these uh, statement uh, terms might be there. And these terms are we are referring as task terms. So most of the time what happens that irrespective of uh, 
whatever these uh, terms are. Simply the statement bureaucracy, reverend concept of bureaucracy is devoid of social psychological input. We write the same. We write the same thing. You know, whatever, because we read the statement, understood that statement, and we wrote, well, irrespective of it is actually, you know, what exactly the task term in that particular question. You need to be very much careful about this task term. Briefly, few, you know, few things that we refer, which you have to follow. As I told, later on we will discuss in detail. We take up accordingly. Few things that you have to recognize at this point of time is, see, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the talks like let's say comment or in your opinion or do you think or do you understand you know, many of these questions you know, many questions of, might be of this nature if these questions are there if it is saying do you think do you understand in your opinion or comment all these are the same all these are the same and here uh, see the, the question demands your opinion your view and as you can understand your view should be a responsible view. Your view should be what popularly we refer as a balanced view. But there is also a popular myth attached to it. You have to escape that. What exactly is believed to be a balanced? That is, when we say this human being is a balanced human being, we say only when we understand this human being has a balanced mind. Balanced mind means a cool mind, a considerate mind, a thinking mind. This is not, when you say balanced individual, that does not mean this individual never takes a stand. We never say that this individual says yes and this individual also says no. With an individual who says yes as well as no is imbalanced. An individual who does not take stand is imbalanced. An individual who in fact Moment you say that individual, you know, this is what is right. Yes, this is what is right. Another time you say, you know, this is what is wrong. Yes, that is what is wrong. That means that individual does not does not have a mind of his own. So don't, no question of being balanced. When we say an individual is balanced, only when that individual, whatever action that individual takes, whatever statement that individual makes, those statements or actions are based on a conviction. A complete conviction or those actions are responsible. What exactly that means? That means that individual relating to that particular issue or consideration have access to different aspects. He understands why certain people say this to be bad, why certain people say it has to be right, or why other people have different opinion with regard to this. So he has access to this or she has access to these different aspects. And by having access, that means he have access to different dimensions. And based on that, he takes a considerate view or a responsible view. So only when you have understanding of different aspects, you will be in a position to take a reasoned view. So individual who takes a reasoned view is what is referred to as a balanced human being. So that is what, when you write an answer that includes these type of tasks, in that, you highlight all the possible dimensions. That means people who are saying yes, 
people are saying no or people have anything else to say so different viewpoints you take up different viewpoints but finally conclude conclude with your viewpoint but when you say your viewpoint you need to understand your viewpoint should be should not be again something that is difficult to accept because your viewpoint is going to be evaluated and the marks depends on you know some part of the marks depends on that so that is why you pursue the view that is most defensible that is most agreeable so moment the question is asking in your opinion so don't think that child based in your opinion my right to go with them so most agreeable view you write and conclude okay you understood that is this dark stone what's to be done need to be balanced and not to be bad imbalanced most of the time what we think are balanced is actually imbalanced you simply do not write yes and no because that is imbalanced you don't have a mind of your own you should write all the different viewpoints but conclude with your viewpoint with justification okay if at all certain terms like let's say elucidate or illustrate is there though there is finer differences there and that we discuss out when i am taking up these things in detail but for the time being see whenever you are asked a question that is uh, having a task to elucidate or illustrate in that you write your arguments as per the requirement of the statement or the question but why you are writing your arguments support the argument with cases and examples supplement the arguments with cases and examples so when it is illustrate you need to actually support it through cases and examples you know to you know that's that's you know that's what you have to do in this case always say if a question uh, carries the constants like uh, elaborate expand detail so all this you treat the same you know, elaborate detail expand it does you not know, it the same in that simply whatever the statement is there whatever the question is there it carries a theme that very theme you detail it elaborate it in that you are not required to disagree or put counterpoints or you you are not expected to put different aspects you would say that the weberian theory of bureaucracy ignores social and psychological aspect you simply elaborate what is weber's theory what is this area of emphasis and how that area of emphasis is in is in ignorance or is in neglect of human factor what is social psychological factor that's all you did not take up counterpoints of the very various other angles and aspects to that there might be different viewpoints so those aspects are not required though towards the concluding line you might refer as such but as such it's, there is no requirement on this type of answer let's say the question is examine scrutinize discuss if this is the nature of the question or the task of in that you highlight different aspects now relating to that statement relating to the essence of the question you highlight different aspects but not necessarily you have to conclude with your definitive opinion that requirement is not there so you can indicate that this particular viewpoint is having more agreement or this viewpoint have less agreement 
this particular aspect has you know better acceptance or this particular aspect has lesser acceptance though these are these various aspects you can raise but it, it does not require you to conclude you to have a concluding line you need to actually go for a concluding aspect so those are not required those aspects should not be required so simply in this what you can do various aspect relating to that topic relating to that theme then you have to raise various aspects and you have to though you have liberty to simply write this aspect as higher conviction higher agreement but you are not required to in fact conclude that this is what is the case or this is what is to be done okay so these are the few things at this moment you just follow while writing your answers and a few more things that you should follow uh, that you, you have to write in a way that i am able to read okay and uh, one more aspect do also develop a habit of underlining now these are the few things you do in the habit with you you do underline your answers why i am saying because these are certain answers which is going to be evaluated and this is going to be evaluated by a human being so it is not objective that the machine is there and this it goes through human being so moment human being are there human factor is there as we study in our subject human factor that you cannot ignore so what is lies or in what lies our benefit our benefit lies in understanding the human factor and accommodating or adjusting to that so a professor is going through some of the scripts so every day a quite a number of scripts that a professor has to go through so it is a routine activity for that individual it is your life for you it is your life but for that individual it is a routine activity so uh, you should write in a manner that generates its interest because believe me when you read other answers you will find out of 10 nine answers are very average or substandard moment you start reading whatever condition you might have whatever whatever time you might have told yourself you know till the last line i should be reading without being judgmental it doesn't happen it doesn't happen moment you start reading you will find you develop an impression for it yeah yes that happens if you stick to your own professors you will find simply moment you restart reading acha the impression is acha it's only one more answer to so that is what i am saying in the very beginning itself present in a manner or the initial answers present in a manner that it is able to generate that very interest acha this is a paper i have worked in no my my time is worth investing so i should be investing more time and at the same time there seems that there's a quite human that you might skip a line so while i'm reading let's say many times it has happened with me when i'm reading an answer i skip a line and i find okay some disorientation comes up but i presume that at times when you write answers many times you miss words or something like that this is quite natural feeling and at the same time not only miss lines but again when you read seeing some answers you have a good feeling with all these are subjective since some answer reading some answer that's a good feeling so moment that's a good feeling before you give a marks if you have to give a marks not merely give feedback if you have to give a complete marks many time what happens you revisit revisit to overall see get a what all is there and how you actually assess it so when you revisit you don't take that much of pain to actually identify every aspects that is there broadly you try to see it and give a marks 
So while I'm reading, first time I'm reading, I might have gone through certain points which I might have liked, but when I'm revisiting, I may not see that. So in order to avoid, in order to avoid the situation that the examiner skipping a line or a word or an important argument, or while revisiting, everything is actually visible that is important. You underline. So while you are writing with the same pain, if you feel this word is important, this line is important, you underline. Having said so, avoid two things, which also I witness with people who are in the habit of underlining. Don't overdo it. Don't underline too much in an answer. Because in that way, there will be no significance. So that is what is not underlined will be highlighted. So don't overdo it. Second, most important thing is, see, don't underline on the presumption that this is something new. Why I'm saying, there's many a time it happens. Since you are studying and you have a limited time studying so much of things and this is being an exam where you want to prove yourself, you have a tendency to collect something new and all these things. So the moment you have something with you or something new, you with a limited understanding, you may not understand that, may not, that is not relevant. But somehow you create a situation and write it. So when you are underlining, you have to be very clear on two aspects. One, you are more than confident that this is relevant or first of all, this is correct. Second, it is relevant. Unless you are 100% or 110% sure that this is right and this is relevant, don't underline. Otherwise, what will happen, even if the examiner is skipping it, you are actually simply imploring upon the examiner, hey examiner, please see that is the wrong thing and irrelevant thing here. So that is, instead of being advantage, it might be danger. So these are the few things you follow and start writing from today onwards your answers. Take a few answers that you can write and uh, preferably you write, today, you know, today onwards you write in my blog, ftmonte.org. It will be easy for me to evaluate. So in that, when I give a question, you write or you can simply write an answer in your page, take a photograph and upload it. And uh, why that I will evaluate, but at the same time, I will urge all of you to read each other's answer. Read each other's answer, and if you have to put a comment, do comment. Don't worry, do comment. That exercise is going to help you. Take it. So, start from today to your writing exercise. Now, coming back, let's take up this playlist. Just a moment. Bernard is a humanistic theorist and as well a behavioral theorist. He has been very much influenced by Elton Mayo and his findings.
he developed a theory and his theory that he has developed uh, has been based on his own practical experience. That means he has been a manager, but it is interesting to know that at the beginning of his career, he in fact was uh, a product of the classical principles of administration. That means when he started his uh, career as a manager, it's not that he was convinced with the humanistic approach. Rather, he was more of a byproduct of a student of which approach? Classical. Classical principles of administration. So in the beginning of his career as a being a manager, he employed classical principles to manage the organization. That means he was basically mechanistic in its orientation. The mechanistic in its previous approach. But see, he failed. He could not succeed, he failed. That, that means he could not achieve the expected result, desired result. As a result of which, he reoriented his own philosophy or reoriented his own managerial philosophy. And here in this particular context, theories like Elton Mayo, theories like Mary Parker Foley has been very influential. Though his work is considered to be one of the original work. It's not that he simply copied or something like that <coughs> or synthesized or something like that. His work is one of the original work. But see, before we actually deal with his ideas, his ideas with uh, organization and the administration, let me refer to one term. Because we refer that Bernard is a behavioral theorist. <coughs> so let me try to elaborate on this particular approach, behavioralism, and theories to follow this behavioralism are being referred to as behavioral theorist. So let me in brief uh, explain this term behavioralism. Don't write this, just try to understand the behavioralism and the approach that was there in our syllabus but that has been taken out. But we need to understand this behavioralism because predominantly the Bernard's theory and Simonian theory is based on this behavioral approach. See, uh, as the term goes, behavior, behavioralism, that means it might be focusing on study work, human behavior. So behavioralism as an approach, it focuses on understanding the group behavior. That means it does not focus on understanding individual behavior. It tries to focus on group behavior. It might try to understand, let's say, the corruption in Indian administration as an approach, it is not interested in studying the corruption with, let's say, X official. It tries to understand the corruption in Indian administration or it might try to understand the work culture in, let's say, Delhi government administration. So the behavioralism aims at understanding group behavior. But the basic scientific or the, the scientific foundation to this particular study is empiricism. That is how does it try to study? It is based on empiricism. So its basis, the very approach that it takes towards studying, it can be 
the phenomenon is empiricism. So it takes an empirical approach. So while taking empirical approach, it studies the individual. But its aim is to understand what? Group behavior. But what is the mechanism of study? To reach that conclusion, to reach the conclusion with regard to groups or entities, the very approach is to consider group or individuals. Individuals. It considers individuals. But aims at understanding group. And how does it study individuals and their behavior? From empirical point of view. And what is empirical? Study the phenomena directly or trying to gather information based on one's senses, human senses. So basically that is what is behavioralism. Behavioralism is an approach. It tries to understand group behavior through empiricism. It's a unit of consideration as far as the study is concerned, individual. So that means to state simply, it tries to study individual, individual behavior in order to finally conclude on the group behavior. So I, if I want to study the war culture in Delhi government administration, then what I will do if I follow behavioral approach? I will take up, I will not go, okay, sit down, let's say, uh, in a library, read some books on the government administration and all these things, I will not go rather, I will go to the government administration. There, I will actually, I might have because the government administration is a huge one, there are lacks of employees. So in that particular context, I may not be able to access each one. But reasonably, I might develop certain strategies like let's say sampling. So I will actually try to bring it, let's say, like only 500 people. But that 500 people, I will choose it in a manner that will be representative of what? The employees of the Delhi government. And in this particular context, each one of these individuals, I will try to understand their work culture, their understanding of work culture, their views on work culture, this 500 I will try to understand. So I will try to understand these individuals. My medium to access and understand the group is the individual. And while I am trying to understand this individual, I will employ which type of approach? Empirical approach. I will try to interview them. I will, I will hear them. I will see them. I will feel them, smell them. So my senses, whatever my senses giving me information, I will rely on that. And in that particular context, I will be, another thing of behavioralism is, my approach, empiricism requires one to be very objective. What is being objective? Objective is, that is a fact, objective, objectivity. Objectivity is an approach which believes that the fact or the reality is independent of human being, human thinking, or human liking, or human approval or disapproval. So whether I approve or disapprove, whether I like or do not like, whether I have a knowledge or not does not matter, reality is existing and reality is something independent of me, independent of human being. So this very approach is what is referred to as objectivity. Objectivity. This approach is an objective approach. Subjective approach means, subjectivity means, it depends on human thinking, human perception, 
that is what is subjectivity but behavioralism emphasizes on objectivity that means it is of the opinion that reality is there whether I like it or do not like it there is something existing so whether I am able to see the, the Pusa road or not Pusa road is existing so it is independent of me my approval or disapproval my liking or disliking my thought or not my thought process independent of me that is a reality so that very approach is what is being referred to as objectivity that means any approach that relies on objectivity it emphasizes on fact it emphasizes on fact don't write this you try to only understand this aspect we will take up the theories when you take up the theories you write but this aspect you just try to understand because unless you understand this perspective it will become somewhat difficult to understand Bernard and more particularly difficult to understand science so here we say moment we emphasize on objectivity or any approach that emphasizes on objectivity it gives preference to fact that means its mode or medium of study is based on fact that means it rejects value what is this as already I might have referred fact is something which is constant invariant doesn't vary so objectivity believes that the reality so that exists independent of human being so thereby that very property the property of the reality is variant or invariant invariant constant so that's what is fact but see on the other hand something that we think varies it is not fact and in this variation so moment say it varies varies means it might be A, it might be B in this variation there is something desirable and something not desirable so B might be desirable A might be not desirable so anything that involves preference anything that involves personal preference or anything that involves individuals emphasis that is what is referred to as value. Like let's say, if I say education, education is something desired as against lack of education. Literacy is something which is desired as against illiteracy. So if I say there are illiterate people in India, whether I know it, do not know it, whether I approve it or do not approve it, there are illiterate people. So basically this approach is which approach? Objective. Objectivity. But somebody will say literacy and illiteracy is subjective. You might think literacy and illiteracy depends on this western academic education. Another will say I don't consider this as literate or illiterate. People who, whom you think as literate are actually literate and people whom you think as illiterate, they might be literate. So for, for that individual, literacy is different. So here this is something debatable. So the reality for those individuals is not constant in values. And in this, there is also a preference that I prefer this other against that. For me, this is important other against that. So that's what basically refers to us value.
So, no, that means if you are taking into account behavioralism as a theory or as an approach, which one it actually prefers? So always remember, behavioralism is fact-oriented. Why fact-oriented? Because it emphasizes in its study what should be actually relied upon? Fact. You should not rely upon value. You should only focus on fact. Now see another aspect. Behavioralism tries to understand individual behavior. That means it tries to understand what is individual behavior? How this individual behavior? Why this individual behavior? So that based on this approach, it will be able to understand the group behavior. Now, moment it tries to understand individual behavior, we need to understand that individual behavior is dependent on certain factors. That might be certain stimulus. The stimulus might be external, it might be internal, it might be proactive, it might be reactive. So, our behavior, my behavior as an individual, it might be driven by my academic knowledge. My academic knowledge might be influencing it. My religion might be influencing it. My culture might be influencing it. My traditions might be influencing it. My familial values might be influencing it. My peer group values might be influencing it. So, whatever I behave in a particular situation, that behavior may not be the same with you. Why? Because the influences over me are different from that of yours. So that is something that influences me to behave in a particular way and there is something that makes me behave in a different way from that of the other. So basically, as far as the human behavior is concerned, there are certain causal factors. There is something that is causing this behavior. So if you are able to understand these causal factors, we will be able to, one, describe the behavior. That this is the behavior, why this is the behavior. We, are, we will be able to describe Ram behave in this way. As far as the Ram's behavior is concerned, these are the factors those influenced Ram to behave in this way. So this is what is description. So, moment we are able to locate the causal factors and explain the human behavior, not explain, detail the human behavior, we are able to describe it. But in the process of description, like let's say the aim is to study group behavior or individual behavior? Group behavior. But in order to understand the group behavior, we are studying individual behavior. So, moment we study lot of individual behavior, lot of descriptions are going to be there. In these descriptions, there are certain causes and there are certain consequences. Ram behaved in this way. Ram behaved in this way because of this. Hari behaved in this way and behaved this way because of this. Or Sita behaved in this way, behaved this way because of this. So number of causes and consequences are there. And some of these consequences could be desirable. Some of the consequences could be undesirable. So in that particular context, we'll be able to identify positive behavior and negative behavior based on positive consequences and negative consequences. Positive are the beneficial, negative are the disadvantages. So moment we are able to identify positive behavior and negative behavior, that means we are able to identify positive causes and negative causes. 
So what leading towards negative consequences? What leading towards positive consequences? As a result of which, the behavioralism can be peripherally prescriptive, not merely descriptive. Though major it is actually describing. So when we we'll deal with individuals, we are describing. This is what. This is what is causing. This is what is leading. But once we have been able to establish these various causes and consequences, we find some of them are positive and some of them are negative. And when when we look at some of them are positive and some of them are negative, we'll be able to understand what are the negative causes, what are the positive causes. That means we'll be able to understand what we need to restrict in order to avoid negative consequences and what we need to introduce in order to maximize the positive consequences. So this particular approach thereby can be prescriptive. Prescriptive means it can prescribe, go for this, avoid this. But based on being descriptive, first of all describing, then prescribing. Now in this prescription, the overall approach is fact-based, not value-based. Be particular and be attentive on this account. In this prescription, in this very description and prescription, both behaviorism as such, its descriptive outline and the prescriptive outline, the behavioral approach is a fact-oriented, not value-oriented. Now, how is this so? Because it might appear to be slightly challenging. Why? Because if we are saying we want to understand group behavior, and in order to understand group behavior, we have to study individual behavior. In individual behavior, we understand individual and behavior is influenced by number of values, belief, faith. So I am behavior, my behavior is influenced by number of my faith, my values, my ideas. So these are facts or values. Is there something value? My religious values, cultural values, and all these things. But see, this is what we have to understand. Behavioralism, while studying individual behavior, studies it from fact perspective, not value perspective. For example, see, in order to understand the corruption in Delhi government administration, I chose 500 people at my sample area. And in that, I started studying them. For example, I might take to a particular strategy, that is, let's say, questionnaire. There might be multiple strategies. Let's say I took two questionnaire, observation and questionnaire. I start observing each and every Delhi government official as per my sample. Like let's say, there is a Bangalore-based uh, non-governmental organization, it closely observes the public officials. It takes note of them, what is them, what is their academic background, you know, when they are employed, in which department, what are their assets, you know, what are their, you know, their relatives, children and all this thing, and keeps closely monitoring the so closely monitors. This close monitoring is what? Closely observing and you are not putting any of your own value. Ki achha, these people are corrupt or these people are honest. 
or this is very arrogant or this is wrong, this is humble. You simply factually detail this has been the asset of this officer in the year 1990 and this has been the total asset of this officer in the year 2018. So that is a change in the asset to the tune of let's say 18%, 20%, 100% or 500%. This is factual or this is valuational? Factual. factual. This is fact. So close observation or interview. I also take a question and start asking. I might ask those officers. I might ask their, these officers about their own assessment or about their colleague. So I can ask your colleague about you, your superior about you, your subordinates about you, even the citizen who are dealing with that officer about you. And in each of these questions, I am going to put a, you know, put a value. What is that? A numerical value. I might say, if an officer is considered as honest, five point, dishonest, minus five, if there is no, no undecided zero. So in every case, I can factualize it or not. So I took to let's observation, I took to let's say questionnaire, question, questioning method. And in this way, I start maintaining record for all this 500. When I'm maintaining this record for all the 500, I'm also maintaining another one. That is personal details. Personal details in terms of what is the religion, what is the age, what is the religion, what is the language, what is the caste, etc. All this I am mean. When this statistics is available with me, I might find that predominantly the officials are great subjects to be found. That okay, 250 out of 500 has been found to be honest. This is a factual statement or it is a value statement. Value means you have your own preference. It is a factual statement. It is, you are not imputing anything of yours based on this is a factual statement. Now out of this 250, let's say you found out by going through this 250, over this 250, you found out that people predominantly 150 of this belong to a particular region. You made a statement, people from this region are honest. I said, people from this region, generally people from this region are honest. This is a factual or value, value statement? Factual. Factual. It's a factual statement. Fact. Now, then I try to find out what are the values predominant in this region. Maybe in that region, a value that has developed over the period of time is honesty. In that region, maybe like let's say Japan. In Japan, basically people who are honest, even if let's say materially not very well off, they are respected very highly. They are considered to be courageous people. So let's say in this region, there is certain things that is developed. Certain values are there, broad values are there. So I found out in this region, A, B, C, values are predominant. I conclude values like A, B, C make people honest. This statement is a fact statement or a value statement? Again a fact statement, not a value statement.
If let's say I found 150 of this belong to a particular religion. I met people of this religion are honest. Then I try to find out what are the predominant values of this religion. I found ABC is the predominant values of this religion. I made a statement. Not related to religion. I may make a statement. Again, people having values like ABC are honest. In both the contexts, when I say people belonging to this religion are honest, people belonging having ABC are honest. Both are fact statement or value statement? Fact statement. Though it is considering what? Something religion is something value. These are certain values. But in terms of studies, in terms of description, in terms of prescription, you are not entertaining value. You simply, you are dealing with that, but from which point of view? Fact point of view. That is why we say behavioralism. So a theorist who in fact is using behavioralism, a theorist who believed in behaviorism or a behavioral theorist in its approach will be fact-oriented or value-oriented? Fact-oriented. So something like let's say Bernard or subsequent to this will study a theorist called Simon. So these theorists will be what-oriented? Fact or value-oriented? They will be fact-oriented. Okay, at least this much all of you understood? Yes. Any confusion on this? Understood? Yes. So, now based on this, let us take into account just a moment. Empirical studies, doesn't it become factual by default? That predominantly is? Yes. Empirical studies are fact based studies. Yes. Fact oriented studies. <coughs> One more term, let me relate here. See, studies based on empiricism. That means an approach that emphasizes on empiricism. And all of you have by now understood empiricism? Yes. So all those studies based on empiricism is referred to as positivism. So an approach to the study that is based on empiricism is referred to as positivism. Okay? Because later on we are going to use these terms. So as I have referred, Bernard is a humanistic theorist as well as a behavioral theorist. See for Bernard, organization is not what classical theorists have thought it to be. He agrees with Elder Mayo that organizations are human groups with human emotions. That is why he says, organizations are network of interactions. So he disagrees with the classical theory and their mechanistic orientation as far as the organization is concerned. Instead, he believes that organization is a human group 
with human emotions. That is why he says, organization is a network of interactions. It's a system of interactions. But see, while referring to the organization, he maintains that the survivability of the organization depends on to the extent the survivability of the organization depends on to the extent it strives efficiently towards the attainment of the organizational purpose to the survivability of the organization depends on the extent to which it strives efficiently towards the attainment of the organizational purpose while also addressing the individual purpose Now, while also addressing the individual purpose and in this particular context as far as the individuals are concerned he refers to the members of the organization not members rather uh, the individuals who are the part of the organization because he said moment to talk about members members of the organization that's the classical view that every individual is a member of the organization so membership that very membership concept is that of the classical theories the humanistic belief that the individuals are nothing but the oh, what is the human emotion bundle of human emotions so it's a social group so being a social group there is a lot of social interactions so study of organization is nothing but study of human interactions so in this particular context bernard says that the survivability of the organization or the successful operation of the organization depends to to the extent the organizational goal is being efficiently addressed while also addressing the goal of the individuals so that is why bernard says organization is a consciously coordinated activity of two or more persons or forces no organization is a consciously coordinated activity of two forces or persons so that means see uh, here let me elaborate a bit before we move forward he saying what is organization is a consciously coordinated consciously means deliberately purposefully he maintains that organization is a deliberately developed entity or develop, deliberately established entity by who by more than two individuals two or more than two individuals so two or more than two individuals come together with a deliberate with a purpose to create something what we refer to as an organization 
So it is not a spontaneous entity. If something an artificial, it's a deliberate entity, it's a designed entity, that means it is, it is created for a purpose. That is what it says, consciously coordinated activity of two or more forces or persons. And that is why he says, organization have three essential ingredients. Organization have three essential ingredients. Those being purpose, willingness to contribute,
So this cooperation gives rise to organization. So that is what it says. Having encountered the global situation, man enters into cooperation, thus giving rise to the organization. And that thereby, what is organization? Thereby, organization is a consciously coordinated, deliberately or mutual. That's a mutuality, coordinated, mutual. So it's a consciously coordinated activity of two or more forces of persons. And that is why, based on that, Bernard says, organization have three essential ingredients. Purpose, willingness to contribute, and third is system of communication. The first one, purpose. as far as the purpose is concerned, Bernard has discussed uh, two different types of purpose. One is uh, objective purpose or organizational purpose, the other is objective purpose or individual purpose. So there are two different types of purpose that the individual, uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, Bernard has discussed with regard to the organization, in the context of organization. Those be objective purpose, objective purpose is also the organizational purpose. Subjective purpose, that is what is the individual purpose. Now let us try to understand this. He says that if you take into account an organization, people come together, when people come together, they are ready to actually come together, cooperate with each other on what premise? Because they want to attain some of their own goal. And since they have failed to actually attain their own goal or accomplish their own goal by themselves, they have entered into this cooperation. So this cooperative activity is basically the byproduct of individual's inability to address to its own requirement all by itself. So that is why within the organization, one goal that is one purpose that will be always be there that is the individual purpose. So you being an individual, a human being, you want recognition, you want authority, you want career security. Or at the same time, based on that, you want to visit number of places, you want to raise a family, you want to be secure, you want to take care of children, your parents. All this you cannot do all by yourself. As a result of which, you are ready to cooperate. So you are ready to enter into a cooperative activity. That's the government of India. But once you are there in the government of India, you are there for what? One purpose for which you have been there. You wanted career self-security for which you are there. You wanted recognition because of which you are there. You wanted the satisfaction of a job you are there. So that means what is there as a part of reality in that organization? Individual purpose. But that individual purpose differs from individual to individual as a result of which that part of the purpose within the organization is subjective. That is subjective because you being a civil servant, you value certain goal which your colleague may not be valuing. <clears throat> you might be desiring certain things which your friend may not be desiring. So goal varies from individual to individual. So that is an important part within the organization. So that is individual goal. One of the reality of the organization is there are individual goals. 
individual aspirations or individual purposes and this purpose is what is subjective. <clears throat> but at the same time, unless and until, if let's say all of you entered into the government of India and started working only satisfying your own purpose. Will the government of India be a very functional organization? No. Successful organization? No, sadly, because here you can explain, as Bernard will say, in Indian administration, maybe people have uh, people are busy pursuing subjective goal while they are missing out with the objective goal. This another important goal or purpose of the organization is the organizational purpose, the collective purpose. So this organizational purpose is same for all. It doesn't vary from one to the other. Organizational purpose is there and this is what is common to all of its members or all of us. <coughs> all of those who are the part of the organization. So that is why the organizational goal is the objective purpose. That's something objective. So Bernard identifies how many purposes? Two. Organizational purpose and individual purpose. The second is willingness to contribute. Bernard discusses in this particular portion the idea of human motivation. His theory has been developed majorly surrounding his ideas on this particular aspect, the human willingness to contribute. Therefore, as theory is concerned, majorly that has been developed around this particular aspect. The willingness to contribute, the human willingness to contribute. That is why many a time his theory has been referred as a theory of motivation. See here, Bernard emphasizes that organization would not survive unless and until individuals are a part of the organization are not motivated. So that means individuals have to do the job. They have to contribute. Unless they are contributing, organization will not be successful, will not be able to succeed. So here one important aspect is highlighting that not only purpose is there, organizations are organizations will be successful only when it identifies the collective purpose as well as individual purpose, but at the same time. As he says, in the fourth that he says, not only identifies this collective purpose and individual purpose, but it also ensures that the collective purpose is efficiently attained while also attaining the individual purpose. Now something that he is trying to say 
that your organization will get you know, success. Let's say government media will be very successful, not merely highlighting that achieve government's purpose. We should focus on efficient. We have to arrange in a manner that uh, that's an efficient exercise driven towards the achievement of the government of India's purpose. Why at the same time also addressing to whose purpose? Its individual employees or officers. Now the second aspect is highlighting is that individuals within the organization should be driven towards a job. So the, the individual's intensity with which the individual is driven towards the job can determine the efficiency of the organization. That is what is human motivation. Bernard believes human motivation is an important factor contributing towards organizational survival or success. Here, he tries to explain the human motivation within the organization through his paradigm that is Contribution, satisfaction, equilibrium. That means it takes to contribution, satisfaction, equilibrium in order to explain the willingness of individuals within the organization to contribute towards the job or to explain the human motivation to simply stay. When he refers to contribution or satisfaction, contribution here refers to individual's effort towards the organizational goal. So whatever I does within the organization towards the organizational goal, that is what is my contribution. So I'm spending some time, my energy, my knowledge, my acumen. So I'm taking something. So whatever contribution, whatever I'm actually doing for achieving the organizational goal, that is what is my contribution towards the organization. In return to this, the organization provides certain benefits in terms of its salary, fringe benefit, or other other towards the rewards. So all that that organization does, organization gives to the individual in return for the contribution is what is being referred to as satisfaction. So contribution basically refers to individual's effort towards the achievement of the organizational goal that is what is contribution and all that that is actually given by the organization to the individual in return for the contribution is what is referred to as satisfaction. Bernard says, individual's willingness to contribute depends on the contribution 
satisfaction balance that is individual's perception of the satisfaction perception individual's perception of the satisfaction should be more than contribution not equal more than so what should individual perceive the one who is actually doing the job the individual should have a perception that what i am doing for the organization that is contribution it is in fact is less than what the organization is giving me in return so my satisfaction is more than contribution the bernard that a, 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 in such type of situation when the individuals believe satisfaction is more than contribution individuals become motivated or driven, driven towards job on the other hand individuals become demotivated so Bernard is simply saying unlike the classical theory what classical theory is saying when individuals will be motivated pay their money recognize the performance pay their money that's all but that is what for which they are there so for them motivation is only one money you provide them and in that particular context Bernard is exploring certain psychological aspect he is saying no see you need to talk, uh, understand that the individuals who are there in the organization they are there for a purpose that is their own so not only that of organizational if you want these individuals to work towards the organizational goal then you need to satisfy what? their respective goal these individuals are motivated only when they have a feeling feeling that their satisfaction is more than that of their contribution that means whatever they are contributing towards the organization that is less than whatever they are getting from the organization something like I have a feeling or I develop a feeling while working within an organization you see whatever I am giving to the organization that is less than what the organization is giving me so in this contribution satisfaction equilibrium the condition when individual feels that satisfaction is more than the contribution motivates the individual on the other hand if the individual develops a feeling that my contribution is more than satisfaction because I am peanuts so moment I feel my contribution worth more than what this organization is giving then that results into demotivation lowering of effort so that results into weakening of willingness to contribute. This is what he is referring to as contribution satisfaction equilibrium. So here equilibrium does not refer to equal contribution being equal to satisfaction. Rather what he said that when the feeling is what I am doing is less than what I am getting. So what I am getting is more than what I am doing. That feeling that satisfaction is more than the contribution drives an individual more towards performance. But see, as per Bernard, satisfaction is not merely monetary. Satisfaction is both monetary as well as non-monetary.
satisfaction is not merely monetary, it is also non-monetary. Now he has discussed uh, the human satisfaction with his term inducement. He just uh, tried to explain the human satisfaction within the organization through the concept inducements. That means that's what induces or influences an individual towards the performance of the job. And that's what attracts, it, attracts an individual towards the performance of the job. So that, that is what is referred here as inducement. And uh, Bernard says inducement is not only monetary, it is also non-monetary. In this particular context, he discusses two types of inducements. Specific inducements and general inducements. Specific inducements and general inducements. So two different types of inducements are there. As far as specific inducements are concerned, those being write down, let me refer to this, you write down these inducements, then I'll explain. Those being first material inducements. No material inducements under the specific inducement. First one under the specific inducement is material inducement, that is money or physical conditions. Second, personal, non-material opportunities, physical conditions, like let's say humidity, temperature, cleanliness. Second, personal, non-material opportunities, personal, non-material opportunities, that is, uh, let's say, recognition, personal distinction, power, Next, desirable physical condition of work. Desirable physical condition of work. Fourth is ideal benefactions. With a bracket you can write, such as that of workmen's. I'll explain all this, don't worry. Such as the pride of workmen's. Sense of adequacy, loyalty towards the organization, etc. So, this is ideal benefaction. Ideal, I D E A L, ideal benefaction. Benefit, benefaction. B E N E F A C T I O N, benefaction. So these are the four specific inducements and the general inducements are similarly general inducements. First, associated attractiveness. 
compatibility with associates compatibility with associates next adaptation of working conditions to adaptation of working conditions to habitual methods and attitudes third the opportunity the opportunity for the feeling of enlarged participation in the course of events Now the opportunity for feeling of enlarged participation in the course of events. Then fourth one is the condition of communing with others. The condition of communing with others. So see, uh, these are the eight different types of inducements we have discussed under two broad heading, uh, that is specific inducement and general inducement. So Bernard is of the opinion that individual's motivation depends on inducements. Because inducements, in fact, ultimately uh, can define individual satisfaction. And if the human satisfaction is more than the individual's perception of its own contribution, then individual is motivated, otherwise individual becomes so, the idea of satisfaction that human being is satisfied, if I am satisfied I work. Let's say you entered into civil service, many times you find there are people who also leave civil service. And if you ask, maybe they will say, okay I am not satisfied. Maybe if Bernard has to explain their dissatisfaction or not being satisfied, the Bernard will say, you see possibly they feel that whatever satisfaction they were deriving within the organization, that was far less than what they were contributing. In that particular context, the idea is that see, this is a type of feeling. It's not something mathematical, you can calculate 1, 2, 3, 4. This is all about feeling. And this feeling flows from certain type of inducement because the organization gives us certain type of inducement or if organization attracts us, makes our job more attractive. And that is done based on certain type of inducement. And I would not say it is not only one inducement as classical theory says money. There are many money as well as non-monetary inducements. These are eight inducements. Some of them are specific, some of them are general. Like let's say, as for a specific material inducement. What is that material inducement? Mostly money. Or the human being's physical condition. Like I say, whether safety is there, bodily safety is there or not. So, monetary inducement. So, that induces, that influences an individual in the job. Let's say the job does not have much of the salary. Or let's say the job involves bodily harm. 
it will be a demotivation. <coughs> it will be a disincentive. Similarly, non-material, personal non-material inducement, like distinction. In that, you know, job involves recognition. You are doing a particular type of activity, in that there is recognition. Or that involves power, exercise the power. So that influences or not? That gives a positive influence or not? The power itself is a inducement or not? So that is another type of inducement. At the same time, <coughs> physical condition of work, whether you have a good office or a DG office, whether working area or environment is temperate or comfortable or humid, so all these things are also going to affect the physical condition of work is also an inducement. Or let's say, if you take into account another aspect, the very satisfaction. Because the satisfaction of work man said, what is that? He might have developed certain skill. <clears throat> and while doing the job, you think, my skills are not being used. Itna bada, itna so satisfaction of work man said, that what you have learned, that is what you are able to use. And not only that, you are able to use that in a manner that you are able to be very creative, very efficient. So that satisfaction of workmanship, the satisfaction of let's say, organizational loyalty, or you are able to do the job, you are able to take care of your family nicely. That satisfaction or not? So that is what is referred to as ideal manufacturing. These are certain types of inducement that are referred to specific because they are specific to the individual's job itself. But there are certain general inducements that is associated attractiveness. <coughs> what is that associated attractiveness? So the moment you are going to job, the superior is bad, colleagues are hostile, subordinates are non-cooperative. Do you feel like working? No, it makes the work difficult. But let's say you find your boss to be relaxed, your colleagues to be very interesting and supportive, and subordinate to be very, let's say, energetic. It itself is a may inducement or not? It is an inducement. That's what is associated attractiveness, social aspect. Or other, <coughs> sorry, the, 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 the other inducements, like let's say, the condition of communing. Condition of communing means, see, we being a social being would like to communicate, freely communicate. But there's certain type of organization, like let's say, Weberian or classical, the idea is, you just say what you're asked for. You cannot communicate freely. So if you're able to communicate freely, if you are able to communicate with others freely, get information, give information, develop understanding, it itself is a good feeling. It is an inducement. Similarly, what are the other <coughs> two inducements or the general inducement? Adaptation of working condition to the habitual way of doing work. That is, for example, let me give you an example to make this understand. At what time do people generally wake up? 
So let's say if you are in the habit of waking up at around 12 o'clock, 12.30 or 1 o'clock, that is many problems. And you get a job that you have to report at 5.30 in the morning. So there are two jobs. One job which you have to report at 5.30, another that you have to report at 2 o'clock. Which one you would prefer provided that the advantage is not greatly different? Two o'clock. Why? Because you have a habitual, you have certain habits and it matches your working condition. Let's say you read novels and you like reading and you got a job that requires reading. It would be beneficial or not? It would be it would be inviting or not? On the contrary. Let's say you do no more writing, you have gone through this UPSC. In the process of preparation, don't like anymore reading, and that job requires reading. Would you like it? You may not like it. So that's another thing. If our habits matches with the job, the conditions of the job, the requirements of the job, that is actually advantageous. That is that is an inducement. Similarly, if you take into account the another one, the opportunity of feeling in large participation. That means if you're if you are allowed to take part in the decision making, that means you are not merely imposed upon. In that organization, in your position, whatever you are doing, and in that you also take part in the decision making. That's a good feeling or not? That's a good feeling. So able to be a participant in the process of decision making, that also gives you a lot of what to say importance, feeling of importance that is also an influence. So an organization which allows the individuals to participate in decision making for that individual that's an incentive, as good an incentive as that of it's a monetary organization. So Bernard says there are many different types of inducements. It is not only monetary, it's non-monetary and just discussed eight different types of inducements within the organization and it means that based on these inducements, individuals develop their feeling of satisfaction. And if they believe that their satisfaction is more than the contribution, they remain motivated. On the other hand, if they feel that their contribution is more than the satisfaction, they become demotivated. And again, let me repeat, this is a feeling. Feeling based on inducements, and inducements are not merely Monetary is also non-monetary. So basically it's a combination of factors. In one organization you might be getting less salary, but let's say you're given more importance in terms of recognition, power, you're handling a very important job and you're taking part in the decision making. So if you don't leave, you might become more satisfied because salary is not the only basis for satisfaction. It might be one of the basis for satisfaction. It's not the only basis for satisfaction. So, the feeling of satisfaction depends on number of factors and is something personal. Something personal. For the same thing, you might have satisfaction which your friend may not. It's something personal. So, Bernard says that the individual satisfaction is the basis for individual's motivation. So, that means what the Bernard is trying to say? Bernard is saying that managers should arrange these inducements in a manner or managers should 
bring about an environment whereby individuals should feel satisfied if the manager wants the individual to work in their potential. So, <coughs> motivation of the individual within the organization depends on individual satisfaction. But who is responsible for providing satisfaction? Who is responsible? Not the manager. So here, one more aspect that we refer. Bernard says, managers should be amateur psychologists. The managers should act as amateur psychologists. So who is a successful manager? Successful manager or successful management is all about manipulating the organizational environment towards individual satisfaction. Let me <coughs> elaborate this aspect. <coughs> so Bernard is saying, you see, if you are a manager, you need to understand that you are ultimately going to attain success through who? Subordinates. It is there. And they will work to their potential only when they are highly motivated. And when they are highly motivated, when they are feeling satisfied. And satisfaction basically depends on inducements. So here, thereby, you should, your ability should be all about making them feel satisfied. So for that to happen, what is required? You should be an amateur psychologist. Because see, being a manager, you are not a professional psychologist. <clears throat> Your profession is not to actually read people, understand them, what are their mindset, what are their values, what are their needs. Rather, you are a manager. But management requires the individual to be a psychologist. <clears throat> the success of management requires the managers to be psychologists. What is that? They should be closely observing and monitoring the subordinates. And through their close observation and the monitoring, they should be able to understand whether my subordinate is feeling satisfied. So that is a feeling of dissatisfaction. And if there is a feeling of satisfaction, how? Why? If there is a feeling of dissatisfaction, then why and how? So that is an act of what? Is it a hard, is it a straight act involving certain managerial principles? No. It's a, it's a, it, it, it is an activity that requires an individual's close observation of the another. So to play a psychologist, 
to no, the manager is to is required to play the role of a psychologist <coughs> and while playing this the, the role of uh, uh, to be a psychologist what he has to do he has to create a condition he has to manipulate the organization and its environment here manipulation does not mean cheating lying or something like that manipulation here refers to design determining developing so the the manager should actually do all that in order to make the subordinate feel satisfied what is that woman can understand this fellow is not happy about his salary if possible i can actually deal with this salary if i think this individual requires recognition i should also arrange for that particular aspect if, if i find this fellow is somewhat unreasonably satisfied dissatisfied then i should work towards actually making uh, or introducing sense into that individual and making convince that okay whatever is given to you whatever the arrangement of the existing situation that's actually good if you move out things are even more difficult so basically here what is the job of the manager in order to be successful to manipulate manipulate uh, the organizational environment towards the individual satisfaction but in order to manipulate the manager has to play the role of a psychologist that could be a major psychologist the manager has to be a major psychologist this all of you understood one more aspect is dealing uh, here relating to willingness to contribute so on one account is dealt with uh, the human motivation that if people are more motivated they will contribute if they are less motivated they will restrict contribution if they are demotivated they may not contribute they might give the organization but one more aspect one more important aspect that has dealt with is the phenomena of authority Partially complied. 
So when a superior is actually issuing a new command, the subordinate might fully comply to the command or completely disobey the command, might obey, might disobey, or might partially obey. The obedience towards the command or the meaningfulness of the authority depends on the acceptance towards the authority by the subordinate. So Bernard says that the meaningfulness of the command, the, accept, the, the meaningfulness of the authority, that means authority will be complied based on the acceptance of the authority by the subordinate. Here there is an important point Bernard is trying to make. Bernard is saying that compliance towards the authority does not depend on the position of the authority. So the compliance towards the command does not depend on the position that commands. Rather it depends on acceptance to the command. Acceptance by who? By the subordinate. So he's trying to simply say that I am your superior. The moment I command you, doesn't mean that you will follow. You might follow, you may not follow, you might partially follow. So you might actually implement what I have asked you. You may not implement. You might go for a number of straight ways you can disobey. Or in a number of different ways, in a way you will go about it that is not done. So the, there can be actually frustration to the command. The, the command might be disobeyed, command might be obeyed, it might be partially obeyed. But it says the obedience primarily depends on the acceptance. So if the command is being obeyed, more good because the command has been accepted by the subordinate, not because it has been issued by a superior position. As it says, acceptance of the authority depends on four factors. Those being, first, it is intelligible, it is intelligible, second, it is in the individual's own interest, it is in accordance with the organizational purpose <laughs> it is in accordance with the organizational purpose and four it is within the individual's physical and mental capacity Let me try to explain this in a humanist way. Like let's say, I am your superior and I am giving you a command, I am issuing a command. Will you be able to comply to it if you have not been able to understand it? No, you will not. 
or you you are able to understand it differently that I am actually asking you. So many times they find the bosses are angry because they will say, "Kuch bola tha, tum kuch aur karte liya." So not listening the subordinates so deliberately trying to frustrate the command. The command has been frustrated. The command has been disobeyed. But why the <coughs> command has been disobeyed? Because the communication has not been clear. So the command has not been completely understood or intelligible. So the first thing is it needs to be accepted by the subordinate. Only when the subordinate is accepting it, it will comply to the command. And acceptance depends on one should be able to understand it. So that is why you find Bernard will say. So basically, under this, what Bernard is arguing that here the manager, when you are giving the command, ensure that command is given in a manner that has been completely understood. No, completely understood by the subordinate. That is why you find few of the individuals after actually giving an order, they last without their order. बोलते ही नहीं कभी कभी बोलोगे नहीं कभी कभी किसी के साथ जो बहुत एक्सपीरियंस भी होता है बोलते हो फिर बोलते ही इधर आओ क्या बोलो What is that? That something Bernard because Bernard is saying unless until the communication is clear, the communication will not be complied. In fact, the communication will be disobeyed or partially obeyed. So the first thing is. It should be intelligible. Second, it should be in accordance with the goal of the individual. So, somebody who is actually carrying out that command, if carrying out that command affects his own interest, it goes contrary to his own interest, may not comply. So, when that individual will comply, when it is in accordance with its own interest. So, you have a job that might be difficult, but again, if you are accomplished, that will give you recognition. So you have a subordinate who is hungry for recognition, and you get take this and do it. So that individual will what readily accept it and comply. Why? Because in doing that, he's going to achieve what his own goal. But let's say it's a very difficult job, and that one subordinate who in fact is happy doing a regular, simple job, that means like difficult job. I don't see. He thinks I don't want recognition. I don't want bonus. I want the easy life. I know very difficult job and ask him, "Ye kaun se tum karoge?" Do you think we'll be able to do that very nicely? No, we're not. So that's what we refer. The command in order to be followed, the command in order to be meaningful, or authority in order to be meaningful, it requires to be accepted and accepted by the subordinates, subordinate, and the acceptance depends on these four factors. It should be intelligible. It should be in accordance with the individual's own goal. And third, it should be in accordance with the organizational goal. This is something folly. This principle is something folly. Folly. If you remember the term depersonalization of order, what is that? The command emerging from situation, not from position. Position. That means what is actually required as per the job. Organizational goal. So here, Bernard says another important thing that actually makes individual to accept. Moment you feel you just feel it, yeah, that's what I'm doing. But I've been once told that I need to do it. Why do you do it? Many times these resentments are there or not. But moment you feel, you know, this is what is most appropriate for the job to be carried out. That increases motivation. That increases acceptance. So the third important requirement as per the Bernard is. They, it should be in accordance with the goal of the organization. 
and the fourth is it should be within intellectual and mental capability of the subordinate. Let's say you told the subordinate to carry a heavy load for one kilometer. Let's say he's sick. He's actually, you know, let's say he's poor in his physical build. So in that particular context, he may not be actually able to carry it. So he will not comply. If comply, it might be very difficult. Intellectual. That means see, if an individual does not know a particular skill and you ask a job that involves that skill, what is going to happen? Either partially complied or not fully complied. So that is why, while giving command, the superior should be very careful that this command requires a type of activity and that activity involves a type of skill or mental conditioning and that is what there is with the subordinate. So Bernard said, if while passing the command or exercising the authority, these four characters in communication is ensured, if these four characters are taken into account, then that results into the acceptance by the subordinate of the command or acceptance by the subordinate towards the command of the superior and only in the acceptance lies the compliance. So that is what he says. Varad says that authority not necessarily flows from the position. Authority flows from the nature of the communication. Authority not necessarily flows from the position. Rather, authority flows from the nature of the communication. That is why later on we will study. As we will say, communication is authority. Now write down a question. Now write a question. Organizational authority, though, is objectively maintained, though, is objectively maintained in various statutes. laws, rules and regulations but it becomes meaningful <coughs> becomes meaningful only when but it becomes meaningful based on the nature of the communication that is directly 
directed towards its compliance. That is directed towards its compliance. Elaborate. Read the statement. What does what does the statement say? It is saying, like say within the organization there are various statutes, laws, rules, and regulations. Let's say tomorrow you become an officer of the Indian Revenue Service. So there are many statutes, income tax acts, if, you know, act is there, or the they, they give you know, the various laws relating to gift or wealth or succession is there, or Benami transaction acts are there. So see the number of acts are there, number of laws are there, rules and regulations are there. So these acts, laws, rules and regulations, they define what is your authority. So national authority objectively details the, 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 let's say the power of an individual through various statutes, laws, rules and regulations. But this authority is meaningful only based on the nature of communication. So you are an officer, number of laws, rules, regulations gives you power. But whether you will be powerful or not, whether your authority will be complied or not, that depends on the nature of communication and that uh, and the nature of communication basically defined through these four characters. Whether this has been understood by the subordinate, whether in compliance to this lies the interest of the subordinate, while in compliance to this lies the interest of the organization or not, whether in compliance to this or whether the compliance toward this authority is within the physical and mental capacity of the subordinate or not. Only when these characters are there, then the authority becomes meaningful. That is why the being referred, authority becomes meaningful based on the nature of communication. And to the extent this communication is important, let us say communication is authority. Till this all of you have understood? Now one more aspect with regard to the authority. See, what is the popular perception relating to the authority, superior-subordinate relation and compliance with the authority? What is the popular perception? I being superior, moment I open my mouth, subordinate is going to comply. That's what is the popular perception. If I have a superior in position, my authority is superior, subordinate, subordinate in position, subordinate authority, and I give command, subordinate follow, and if, that is what is given. Bernard says, this is myth. This is a myth. What is a myth? That see, merely being superior, one has superior power or authority. And authority is always complied. And in the absence of compliance, people are punished. So you will be punished if you do not comply. Generally that is the feeling. You have to comply. If you do not comply, you are going to be punished. Bernard says, these are the part of the myth. What he refers to as the fiction of authority. Fiction. Fiction means what? Something that is understood but not necessarily real. 
friction of authority, friction, not friction, friction, F-I-C, P-I-O-N, friction, friction of authority. So that means, under this particular phrase, fiction of authority, Bernard is trying to emphasize that this very widely acceptable view that superior have superior power and superior power is always, but the superior's command is always complied with and in the absence of compliance, there is punishment. So you might disobey. You may not actually comply. You may not be working properly. But still, you may not be punished. <clears throat> so it's not real. That moment you disobey, you're going to be penalized. Rather, he says that the authority becomes meaningful based on the acceptance of the subordinate while the power of veto lies with the superordinate <coughs> authority becomes meaningful based on the acceptance of the subordinate while the power of veto power of veto lies with the superordinate. <coughs> what is superordinate? Superior. Superordinate is superior. I think the first part of the statement all of you are clear because as I say the authority depends on the acceptance of the subordinate. That means it's trying to say if the authority is obeyed, it is obeyed why? Because subordinate is accepted. So when subordinate is accepted, is subordinate complies. But see power of veto, power of veto means veto means what? Rejection. Rejection. So this rejection lies with who? metaphorically trying to say if the authority fails if command fails then who is responsible for this? not subordinate who is responsible? superior so in our relationship you are the superior you are the subordinate and I am issuing a command Bernard is saying see command is not automatically followed neither in disobeying that command lies your punishment not necessarily, this is something untrue. You may not follow, and even if you do not follow, you may not be penalized. You may not be ridiculed. If at all you are following, only to understand you follow because you accepted my command. For acceptance, these four conditions are there that you already referred. But in your disobedience, the responsibility does not lie in with you. 
the concentrator lies with me. Why? Because whether you obey or not, that depends on acceptance. But that conditions of acceptance is controlled by whom? Me. Because you accept only when you understand whose responsibility to make you understand? Me. Whose responsibility is to arrange the job according to your need or interest? Me. Whose responsibility is to define that job in accordance with our national goal? Me. Whose responsibility is to give you a job according to your mental capacity and physical capacity? That is what is me. So that is why if the job is frustrated, if the authority is actually frustrated, is because I did not take care of these characters in the command. So who is responsible for disobedience to this authority? Not the subordinate, rather the superordinate. So effectively, who is exercising veto? Not subordinate. It is the superordinate. So if the superordinate who is responsible for disobedience of the command, it's not the subordinate. So he's trying to actually explain a different version or notion of authority. If you take into account the classical theories or Weberian theories, they say that authority lies in the position. Superior has superior authority and subordinate has subordinate authority. Superior has to command and subordinate has to obey. Subordinate's compliance lies in superordinate's command. But here, if you take into account Bernard, Bernard is introducing certain dynamic aspects. He says, organization is not as static as we understand theoretically. It's not that it's something that there are various positions, higher position has higher knowledge, lower has lower knowledge, and moment you are recruited, you are recruited on the basis of merit. Moment you are recruited on the basis of merit, you need you know everything. And moment anything flows from the mouth of the superior, automatically you understand none of this. He is trying to say within the organization there are a number of things that is tentative, non-standardized. Now Bernard is trying to say that if you take into account the organization, within the organization, number of things are there, those are tentative, non-standardized. Let me elaborate this aspect. Imagine an organization of robots. If let's say this organization is the organization of robots. So they have to communicate with each other or not? In order to communicate with each other, do you think we have to create a language? No. You have to create a language? And that language has to be standardized or not? It has to be pretty standardized. So whatever the, this is speaking, automatically understood by the subordinate. Big robot. But this is a human being. So since they are human being, that is a language. But do you think the language is communicated every time in a standardized mode? No, at times that might be loud, it might be there, low, the pronunciation might differ, the construction of sentence might differ, so a number of different things might be there. So at times I might introduce another language. So the, the organization is not a fully standardized environment. There is a number of things that is tentative, number of things that is non-standardized, as a result of which this positional view of authority can, can never work. It's not fully complete. So that is why in that particular context he is referring. No, he is referring. Let's say the the, the, the the authority 
in the compliance of the authority, in the, the followings of the authority, what is very important? Acceptance of the subordinate. The success of the authority primarily depends on, or the meaningfulness of the authority primarily depends on the acceptance of the subordinate. But the power of veto lies with the superordinate. Because who, who is actually or really responsible for disobedience? Not the subordinate. It is the superordinate. So that's what it says. Power of veto lies with the superordinate. And this is what he refers to his idea, fiction of authority. Fiction. The popularly what we believe. Moment you are based on merit, you understand everything, know everything. So organization is very standardized. Superior gives command, subordinate follows. Movement do not follow penalty, punishment, or colleagues might ridicule. But in reality, things are not standardized. I am speaking in a language you may not understand. Even if you know, I actually command you, you might follow, may not follow, inadequately follow. When you do not follow, you might have a lot of justification not to do that. You might give a lot of justification why you did what you did. As a result of which I might be helpless, I may not punish you. Your colleagues may not be actually ridiculing you. So if all this thing that is actually a part of the popular perception relating to the exercise of authority through position is a part of fiction. The reality might be different from what popularly understood. So it might be mere myth. That is what he refers to as fiction of superior authority. And here he says the acceptance of the authority of the authority becomes meaningful based on the acceptance of the subordinate. But the power of veto lies with the superordinate. So these things are understandable to all of you. All of you understood this? Any question? Sir, all these observations which Bernard is making, are they purely based on his experience or he has done some academic pursuit? No, actually Bernard uh, did not do much of the empirical studies. So most of these ideas that he has developed, though he, his, his approach is actually what? Empirical. But his empirical foundation is very low. Yes. So those would be a part of criticism we take. Yes. Can we say the idea of willingness to contribute can lead to voluntarism? Uh, idea of contribute? Willingness to contribute to heading as a task. Uh, can we say it as a voluntarism? No, no. no. See, he, he is saying, under the willingness to contribute, he is trying to understand the human motivation. So, he, to what extent you are motivated to work? He is saying, individual will be motivated when given salary. Individual will be motivated when, let's say, given recognition, authority, power. So, human willingness to contribute means human motivation depends on certain factors. That he is discussing. He is not discussing about voluntarism. So, we are saying that the manager should manipulate the organizational environment as per the individual needs. Management should uh, uh, manipulate for ordinational purpose, towards the ordinational purpose. So we had written, it should be towards individual satisfaction. Ah, ordinational purpose, only if you try to only focus on ordinational purpose, you may not be able to attain it. So what you have to do, 
in order to ensure organizational success, efficiently addressing organizational goals while at the same time simultaneously addressing individual goals. So Bernard says, if government of India says, forget yourself and only think about the India as a country, India my country, and I have to work for my country, you may not be very much enthusiastic. The government of India could actually you know, achieve its goal, the government of India can be a very successful organization if it can address your goal and link your goal with organization goal. So while you are given assignments and job, you should try to understand what is your goal and should give assignments in a manner that in doing that job, not only your own, not only the government of India's goal is addressed, but also simultaneously your goal is also addressed. That is what he is trying to say. Because many times you will find people go and join and might leave. Where they might be thinking that okay, being in civil service is all about serving the people. So while in the organization they might find okay, being in the civil service is all about serving the powerful interest. So in that case, that is one of their own goal not being satisfied dissuades them from moving out of the organization. So we enter into the organization for what? Our goal. But at the same time, there is another goal that is organizational goal. So organizational success, as Bernard will say, depends on efficiently attaining and efficiently driven towards the organizational goal while satisfying the individual goal. Okay? Anyway, we will learn this particular aspect a bit more with all the subsequent theorists are going to emphasize on this. Okay? But whatever we discussed today, till this much, all of you have understood? No questions? Fine. And I hope all of you are starting your answer writing today onwards. Okay? Write and uh, upload and uh, to whatever extent possible, I will be regularly correcting it. Okay? Then we will go back. And in the due course of time, we will learn how to write and how to address the various questions. Gradually, we will be Thank you. छूट गया है